Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International, and in this podcast we're taking a closer look at China's Belt and Road Initiative. One Belt, One Road is a key part of China's ambitious economic strategy and was initially launched in 2013 as a massive infrastructure plan to support the country's growth and to open up trade with the rest of Asia and countries even farther afield. By the time of the Belt and Road Summit in 2017, almost two-thirds of the world's population and a third of the global economy were aligned in some way to the initiative. Over a hundred countries, from Southeast Asia to South America, are now involved in related projects. Hundreds of billions of dollars have been committed to the enterprise. But for the last few years, some of the fanfare has died away. The US-China trade war and the global pandemic have overshadowed multinational initiatives everywhere. But Belt and Road continues. As economies rebuild in the wake of the pandemic, with a greater focus on the environment and shorter supply chains spelling the end of globalization, we ask what does this all mean for Belt and Road? Where will it go next? And what does this mean for investors? Guiding us through this topic today, we have three of Fidelity's investment team, starting with Linda Zhou, an equity portfolio manager based in Shanghai. Linda, do you think that the Belt and Road Initiative remains relevant and important today? In a nutshell, I think it's still relevant, um, but it probably will be relevant in a different way. Um, like you mentioned, when it's firstly launched, it's mainly focusing on the China-led uh, infrastructure projects in these oboe countries. Um, but getting to the later year, uh, we got a, um, a lot of issues on the U.S.-Sino trade, um, and also you know some of the initiatives get a um, lot of questions. So I think in recent years, it's actually more towards kind of build up the Chinese company's exposure in the oboe countries. And also recently, we just uh, have this news of the RCEP. Uh, I think it's also another kind of further um, extension uh, of the OPPO strategy, which will help to increase the uh, multilateral flow uh, within the region. And welcome also to Alex Duffy, a portfolio manager with a focus on emerging markets. Alex, your career has taken you from deep mines in Africa to boardrooms in Asia. What have you learned about China's approach to outbound investment? I think from my perspective, it's how much that outbound investment has changed in terms of the nature of it. So as you alluded to, my first experience with Chinese investment overseas as equity investors was really visiting mines in in Africa in 2005. And you saw large Chinese uh, operated mines, smelting capacity that was really aimed at providing the mineral resources, gaining security of supply to feed the infrastructure boom and, and the domestic construction build out. And what I've observed as my career has progressed, but also as China's progressed, is how the nature of that outbound investment has changed. It's moved from a grab for resources to greater security of technology. So you've seen uh, Chinese corporates buy robotics companies in Europe and, and in the US and, and elsewhere. And also you've seen that outbound investment move to secure new markets for Chinese exports as opposed to that kind of grab of resources, which was imports. So I I think some important changes in terms of how it's evolved over the last 10 to 15 years. Thank you, Alex. And finally, we have uh, Nation Sri Balasundaram, a sovereign credit analyst covering Asia's emerging markets. Nathan, you talk regularly to the governments that are working with China. What's a common view that you hear from them about Belt and Road? 
Yeah, so in speaking to many of these countries um, and finance ministers in the countries, most of them welcome the support from China, not only for the financial support, but also for the technical know-how and the experience that they have related to building large-scale infrastructure buildings. It's allowing them to unlock GDP growth that would otherwise go unfunded, and this allows them to grow the bilateral trade not only with China, but also within the region. Excellent. Well, thank you all for joining me today. So let's start with some more detail on exactly what Belt and Road is and what it isn't. Linda, can you tell us how the initiative began, a little bit about its origins and where it is today? So um, as you mentioned, it's actually first uh, launched by President Xi um, back into 2013. Um, and it initially kind of uh, focus is really trying to increase connectivity uh, within all the countries along this um, Belt and Road region. Um, and then uh, it was really endorsed by a lot of the um, financial institutions to support um, from China. We actually encounter some of unexpected issues. Um, for example, on the first the economic side of all these projects, um, you know, several years later, it comes to a problem. And also even the incentive of all launching all these projects get questionable. So it, it does come to pause a little bit. And then the Chinese government also need to rethink about um, the whole thing. You talked also earlier about the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, uh, which is something that developed uh, as part of greater integration across the region. How does this sort of play into Belt and Road? How should investors think about Asia integration in the context of Belt and Road? Is it more than just a China initiative? Yeah, I, I think um, they just announced the RCEP. It's kind of downplay a little bit China's role um, in the region, but increase the other um, countries, especially the ASEAN countries. And what's more important is uh, we also have developed countries like Japan, Korea, also willing to, um, as well Australia and New Zealand, willing to join this plan. Um, so I think for China, it's another solution uh, for them to realize this uh, OPPO strategy, because in the past, it's all kind of like one way uh, China-led kind of investment. But in this RCEP, it will be more multilateral, I will think. And China will reduce also a lot of imports tariff. They will also import a lot more from these countries. Yeah, so, so, so I think RCEP is a quite good way out uh, for an extension of the OPPO strategy. Alex, do you think that the pandemic has had an impact in this trend towards regionalization? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating point and time will tell. You know, the last two decades, we've been on this trend of globalization, which started to get unpicked over the last three to four years. And I think a couple of factors drive that change on a forward-looking basis. The first is that um, historically, Asia was the exporter for the rest of the world. And I think increasingly post-pandemic, you'll see policies which drive greater localization of, of production for, for, for reasonable and, and, and well thought through kind of security of supply reasons, but then also political reasons to, to re rebuild economies in, in Western Europe and the US. And I think that actually what we're going to witness is this greater trend towards regionalization. And for that to be successful, in my eyes, it needs a large domestic economy at the core of each of those regions. 
and specifically within China, within Asia, that's where China's role is, is ever so important. It can act as that large domestic anchor. You've got a large domestic economy, which is really starting to open up very rapidly. And I think as it drags in those supply chains regionally, the, the impact on Southeast Asia and Aust- Australasia was, was what Lin- Linda mentioned earlier on, I think becomes greater. So, so increasingly, in my opinion, over the next 10 years or so, we're likely to see this greater regionalization within Asia with China at its core. And then you may see something else in Europe or in, in North America where those local economies or, or parts of emerging, emerging Europe really start to serve mainly the, the domestic European economy. But clearly the rate of growth is going to be materially different because of the penetration levels and the financial wherewithal in terms of debt to GDP, et cetera, that, that, that China and Asia starts from versus developed markets. And I think that you know that's going to be a critical view over the, over the coming few years for, for global investors. And Nathan, as a, as a sovereign analyst based in Hong Kong, I mean, obviously, you look closely at the effect that the collaborations with China have on participating countries. So how big an impact can it have? And how do you assess the long term value of these partnerships? I mean, taking a step back a little bit from the from the trade route, I mean, one of the key things is the infrastructure that's needed for the trade around the region to work. Most of these emerging economies are actually in huge infrastructure deficits. Um, and what the Belt and Road Initiative allows is for that infrastructure to be built. One of the most beneficiary countries is Pakistan. It was um, forecasted to receive around 60 billion in financing for projects. Now, this, this program had like two focuses. Originally, it focused on the power generation part um, of Pakistan, a country which has serially um, struggled with power generation and has rolling blackouts even in the urban areas. And China's funded around 20 billion in, in the power generation. Now, the second part in Pakistan is also the economic um, corridor down to the south region, which links the port um, on the Arabian Peninsula up into the western provinces of China. Um, this would cut the kind of transit routes by up to 50%, allowing the trade to flow much more easily. Um, a similar experience to that is in Mongolia, a commodity-rich country, um, which has actually one of the largest coal mines in the world um, and is very close proximity to the China on the northern, on the northern boundary. However, get, getting that coal into the Chinese economy proved very tetrous and often took days for trucks to arrive. Um, this has meant that you know the building of train lines and trucking routes has allowed that um, connection to be eased, allowing the economy to grow at a much faster rate. Uh, and finally, you know, looking at some of the ASEAN countries, you know, the push towards a more technological um, belt and road, um, uh, as allowing these countries to grow in in this space and beyond kind of the hard infrastructure that's needed in some of the more southern Asian economies. That's that's really interesting, Nathan. I really want to come back to that point on technology and how that is a, a different uh, element of the Belt and Road Initiative. But before we talk more about the perceived advantages and disadvantages of Belt and Road, we're going to play you a clip. Uh, this is Parag Khanna, uh, a well-known geopolitical economist and author of The Future is Asian. He recently spoke at a Fidelity seminar, and here's what he had to say about participation in China's flagship project. Where you see this infrastructure investment, both historically and today, you will have 
uh, accelerated urbanization, young people moving into cities, looking for jobs and work. And I see that incredible demand created with young people moving into cities, seeking a higher quality of life. So that is why, not surprisingly, though the geopolitics would, would betray uh, this, um, American think tanks, uh, such as the Rand Corporation, have actually used this phrase, win-win, uh, to describe Belt and Road, because they see that on an econometric level, the trade gravities are really intensifying between pairs of Asian countries, and importantly, not just China. China is financing a lot of infrastructure, but all countries see the benefits of opening to more trade with all of their neighbors. Now, also very importantly at a geopolitical level, we can, should not think of uh, China's infrastructure building or binge as something of a one-way street. It's part of a much broader process of financing Eurasian infrastructure in which there are many players in the marketplace. It is what I call an infrastructure arms race. And in an infrastructure arms race, the winner is that not necessarily the country providing uh, the, the workers and the um, finished uh, infrastructure like railways or pipelines or, uh, or power generators, but rather the countries that are absorbing it, using it to fuel their economies, creating jobs, diversifying their economies, growing, and ultimately paying down that debt. And as much as we hear about debt traps, uh, by and large, this is the way it's supposed to work. Borrowing to finance infrastructure, spending wisely, and growing from there. And I think that Asian countries are largely doing that correctly. Parag Khanna. Nathan, do you agree with Parag that Asian countries are doing it correctly? I mean, as we just heard, much of the criticism surrounding Belt and Road is that it's creating debt traps for smaller countries. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around the Belt and Road Initiative with um, some of the Asian economies. One of the great examples I often think about is Sri Lanka. There's a port in the southern state of Hambantota, um, which was often called a debt for equity swap. Now, that's actually untrue. What actually we saw there was Chinese funding um, helping to build out the port. And in the previous government, we actually saw um, the government lease out the port to the Chinese Porting Authority under a 99-year contract. The funding that was made available to build the port actually still remains in place. Therefore, there's actually been no debt swap or debt forgiveness. The actual payment that came for the lease was actually used to pay off um, capital market payments um, that Sri Lanka had, had racked up in, in the capital markets over the previous 10 years. I mean, the, the other area that often gets talked about, Linda, is China's desire to internationalize the renminbi as a currency. Now, should we kind of look at Belt and Road as being part of that ambition as well? Yeah, I think it, uh, it's a quite reasonable guess. Um, actually, if we look at the, the trade um, data uh, within the OPO countries, um, uh, back in 2013, uh, the OPO countries accounts for like around like 25% of the overall China trade value. Um, and I look at the, the data of first half of this year, it's close to 29.5%. So within the OPO countries, uh, China also introduced quite some of the uh, so-called RMB Connect, uh, this kind of trade settlement uh, agreement. Um, so I will expect that with more trades happen within the OBO-related countries, uh, the RMB internationalization is also one of the key kind of uh, objectives. And, and Alex, you, you talked earlier about how the deals that China's done in, in Africa, which, as you say, were kind of mostly driven by resource security. Can you just contrast that with you know, what you're seeing in this more recent flavor of sort of Belt and Road? 
Yeah, I think we've gone through different different stages of this. So as I said, go back 15, 20 years ago, it was about securing resources for the domestic infrastructure build out of China. Um, one of the consequences of that was that China ended up with a vast amount of industrial capacity that started to operate at very low levels of industrial utilization through sort of the last 10 years or so. And so there's been an export of that capital into emerging markets in order to create demand for it, right? So cement plants, uh, machine tool manufacturers, et cetera, domestically without a domestic market because the infrastructure build, uh, build out had happened, then go and look for new sources of demand. And I think Belt and Road plays into that. So one of the, the kind of challenges that Belt and Road has is that, yes, it brings infrastructure to other emerging markets, but if that infrastructure is all provided by domestic Chinese kit, does any of the technology transfer actually stay into the emerging market that they get invested into and, and create sort of sustainable uh, knowledge that can then be used by that market on a on a forward-looking basis or not? And, and I think that is still the area of criticism I would have around around parts of the Belt and Road Initiative is that the longevity of it for the for the host country is 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 still to be seen. Um, I think beyond that, now what we've actually witnessed, however, is the use of technology and China exporting its technological advantages. So we talked about an infrastructure deficit in, in parts of emerging markets. There's a vast technology deficit. And if you look at the rollout of 5G uh, as a case in point, or smartphones as a case in point, India has benefited hugely from access to cheap Chinese and South Korean smartphones, but predominantly Chinese smartphones. And that is unlocking a huge wave of consumerism, driving penetration, and actually getting good quality, cheaper products to a very you know, low-income part of the population. And, and that's where I think some of the true benefits of, of, of China's sort of internationalization and, and part of this Belt and Road Initiative come from, is that they, they're able to use their technology, their, their learnings domestically, export that to these markets that otherwise would take decades to get to the same point of development and fast forward access to uh, high quality products and, and ultimately job creation for for these countries and so there's there's sort of contrasts around around China's development but but there's and, and therefore pluses and minuses but I think going on a forward-looking basis that technological transfer is very very important for a lot of the new emerging markets as they try to get up the the technology curve can I just jump in here? Um, I, I think Alex really has a very great point. I also have very detailed evidence, to, you know, to prove that point. Uh, for example, a company called Shenzhen Chanshen, they are the largest uh, um, phone um, maker in South Africa. They have 50% market share and they provide smartphone uh, at a cost of like uh, 50 US dollars. Um, you know, so that's really provides the local people a very kind of valuable money way to connect to the world. And also a recent trend that we see is, that, you know, the Internet companies in China, for example, Alibaba, uh, even Xiaomi, um, they also being more proactive in acquisition in RCM markets. For example, um, I think Xiaomi uh, get invested into an Indian uh, social platform called uh, Social Chat, um, and also Alibaba extended extensively, you know, their e-commerce platform in ASEAN countries. And on that point of technology deficits and uh, the creation of almost like an information highway, Asia editor Neil Goff spoke to portfolio manager Sumant Wahi about the spread of China's technology and the advent of 5G and how that's been laying the foundations for a new frontier in Belt and Road. 
Well, on the phone with me today is Sumat Wahi, who's a portfolio manager and analyst who focuses a lot on the global tech industry at Fidelity. Uh, Sumat, welcome to you. Hi, thank you very much. I guess what we're here to talk about today, of course, is uh, looking at Belt and Road from a bit of a different approach, uh, more of a sector-specific one. But I thought maybe I could turn it over to you to kick off and, and just tell me a little bit from your perspective how you know the future of connectivity, how you see that being interwoven with Belt and Road. So I guess the Belt and Road program has quickly grown into adding a sort of an information technology or connectivity angle to it, uh, which is along the lines of what they call the digital silk road. If you take a step back, I mean, uh, future of connectivity is all about human activity moving from offline to online and from online to mobile. And we cannot talk about that activity moving uh, online without talking about the latest telecommunication standard, which is being rolled out across the world, which is the 5G connectivity. I mean, China has an easy 12 to 18 months leadership uh, ahead of US and Europe in this technology. And uh, the Digital Silk Road is as much about helping those 120 odd countries across the world which are part of that initiative with upgrading their connectivity to this latest standard with the help of of course uh, the Chinese telecom equipment maker Huawei which is a leader in this space. Where would be an example of a country that uh, you know China stands to make the deepest inroads? You know, what's the case there? I mean, let's take India and, uh, India and Pakistan, for example. Both of them do not have 5G. For strategic reasons, India has banned Huawei and is actually going for the European Ericsson uh, or Nokia supply alongside U.S. help as the country politically aligns itself to the West. Whereas Pakistan, on the other hand, which is already a recipient of the Belt and Road Initiative and billions of dollars from China, is actually actively adopting the digital Silk Road. And as part of that, they are accepting Huawei equipment, even paying for with loans from China as a way to set that as a standard. So there are two countries, neighbors, but very different initiatives on what technology they're adopting today. Can you tell me a bit more about what it might mean for other technologies, you know, 5G, but you know, potentially other companies, other technologies? Uh, if you think of the connectivity today, the connectivity in terms of telecom infrastructure and networks are the new railroads of the industrial 4.0 era we live in today. So everything from automation to artificial intelligence requires fast connectivity. And th those could be built on railroads provided by China or railroads provided by the West. So just then, Suman, in terms of uh, looking forward to the future, you know, mapping out what a, a digital Silk Road might look like and, and what the countries participating in it, you know, how they would stand to benefit or how they would look different from the countries that are cut off from it, potentially. Uh, what do you envision as you, as you gaze into your crystal ball? I mean, I think the Chinese technological leadership is making the digital Silk Road a lot more attractive, right? I mean, uh, this pandemic has put a spotlight on the importance of connectivity. I think there, it'll definitely be a case of countries which are sort of proponents of that digital Silk Road leapfrogging technologies and going straight into 5G. But also it may attract a lot more other countries which were neighbors, which may not have been completely convinced with the Chinese initiative. So maybe to ask it another way, is there an opportunity cost to those countries that opt to go a different direction and, and not to kind of jump on board with this, you know, one belt, one road technological initiative? Do they miss out? 
Absolutely. I mean, you look at India, for example. I mean, they have their own uh, regional or boundary issues with China. But by actually walking away from Huawei, not only are they taking a risk on a connectivity uh, leadership or connectivity progress perspective, but they're all, it's also an economic impact, right? I mean, Huawei kit is a lot more cheaper. And when you think about the fact that, uh, that you know, a lot of networks are already uh, using Huawei telecom equipment today in India, the fact of ripping and replacing is even more expensive for these countries. So, yes, I mean, definitely uh, countries which are choosing not to be on the Silk Road are actually taking a technological risk and also an economic risk alongside that. Sumant Wahi there talking to Neil Goff around the technology element of China's Belt and Road Initiative. Linda, the future that Samant maps out reveals some of these kind of clear benefits for China's technology industry and for those aligning to it and potentially some big downsides for those uh, that don't sign up. What other themes, you know, what other areas do you see emerging as real key beneficiaries as a consequence of Belt and Road? Yeah, that's also quite key questions. Um, I think especially this year, uh, you know, because the pandemic really changes a lot of things dynamic. Ironically, we actually see um, growing bargaining power for the Chinese, uh, some of the Chinese companies on export side, um, as well as, you know, um, some of the industrial companies, uh, you know, building material companies, uh, if they, you know, they expanded to the region, but with strong support from China. So so I think that um, I probably will more focus on these um, uh, Chinese companies which uh, have the ambition of being a, uh, at least a regional one, uh, if not a global company. You know, they have the ambition to use their own brands, trying to export their own brands products in the region. Um, they they would like to build local um, plants in, in the uh, OPPO or, you know, RCEP related countries, just trying to increase their, um, their client space. So we've seen um, companies in, you know, some of the building material space, you know, in China now, some of the building materials like cement is it's pretty much um, penetrated. So, so they're trying to export their um, expertise into some of the uh, um, you know ASEAN countries. Uh, we also see some of the retailers, you know, for example, the really value for money type of products. They're also expanded quite uh, aggressively in countries like Indonesia. And, and so that's really interesting because it feels like you know what we've really been talking about is in a sense, a broadening scope of one belt and road from kind of heavy infrastructure to technology to brands and products. But Nathan, what about, you know, what we would call soft infrastructure, the kind of the services that maintain or improve living standards? Do you see this as being an element that we should be focusing on as well? Yeah, I think there's a there's a huge push for the soft infrastructure now to, to play out in the region. Um, I mean, ASEAN is probably the biggest beneficiary here. And we see that kind of across the healthcare sectors and following on from some of the coalitions that Linda mentioned with the companies or the technology companies within the region, there's also been a lot of coalitions with the educational um, side of this to try and get the education or the understanding of behind the technology into these regions. Um, And so we're seeing kind of mass numbers of students and, and young professionals go to China's universities or go to China-led universities within their home countries 
to push forward that understanding uh, about this technological base. And, and what about from the perspective of like competition? I mean, there's often this kind of charge that, you know, are, are we seeing uh, in different industries a kind of a level playing field given the very, you know, explicit sort of sponsorship and, you know, commitment of China towards sort of Belt and Road? I mean, you know, Alex, from your perspective, are you seeing that it gives some of these Chinese businesses an edge versus other competition, you know, is it who are not able to access that source of financing? Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, the industrial base of many emerging markets has lost share, has been hollowed out by the advancement of Chinese exports and, and cheap, you know, from the point of something like Brazil, you look at capital goods in Brazil, they no longer produce very much domestically, it gets imported from China because it's of higher quality and it's cheaper. And so that obviously has consequences for the structure of some of these economies, whether it's Indonesia, Latin America, or, or, or indeed parts of, of Africa. I think, you know, so, so that's sort of one of the negatives of it. And it comes as a consequence of low cost of capital, large domestic markets that enable you to amortize a, a fixed investment for a certain type of product, and then you can export that externally. However, to pick up on the point that we made earlier on, I do think that that, that technology transfer, that capital goods transfer opens up domestic markets in ways that would have taken far longer to have opened up. So, you know, you could look at somewhere like India is, is, a, is a great example. We've seen um, a domestic company called Reliance roll out um, very, very low cost 4G uh, telephony access um, to the population with with Reliance Geo was is the name of the product. Now that has clearly been enabled by cheap smartphones, as we've talked through already. But it's creating large domestic consumerist markets to open up, and it's creating channels for small businesses in India to service the customer. It's leading to a revolution in payments. You know, financial friction is a major issue in emerging markets, getting people into the banking system. So those trends towards bankerization take a long time. Technology and payments platforms and, and, and fintechs enable that to accelerate much more quickly at far lower costs that unlock the pent-up demand in some of these marketplaces. And so I think whilst you see certain negatives around the export of capital goods and, and, and the domestic industrial base in emerging markets, there are a huge number of positives for the large for domestic economies as well. And it's 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 within the gift of policymakers and those countries to take advantage of the opportunities and monetize them. And it might not have been in the traditional ways in which we would have seen it, but it's undoubtedly still an opportunity. Yeah, I think that's such an excellent point, especially as we think in the context of a, a post-pandemic environment where we're seeing an accelerating digitization of all uh, companies, all countries in, in the world. And Nathan, how do you assess this from a sovereign credit view? Yeah, so from a bottom-up approach, when we look at some of these more frontier markets, um, the FDI flow that comes in from China is ultimately critical to help these countries which run huge current account deficits. I mean, Sri Lanka and Pakistan and Mongolia all fall into the category here where they all, all are almost reliant on the Chinese FDI year after year to be able to fund this um, current account. We often also look then at a more longer term picture and think about the growth impact and whether this debt sustainability argument is actually uh, in for the long run and whether they can grow out, grow out of this debt and, and meet the repayments. 
Um, so we do take a bit of a more holistic approach and long-term approach than just looking at the kind of debt stack that's added at the first post. Maybe Paris, if I could just come in, because Nathan makes an interesting point around um, FDI servicing current account deficits in some of the frontier markets. One of the things that, that I've witnessed over the last 15 years or so is how countries have actually seen current account deficits widen at far lower levels of domestic GDP growth than otherwise would have been the case. And, and this is actually going back to that point around imports and, and the hollowing out of domestic industrial bases. So if you look at countries like Indonesia or, or Brazil or parts of, 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 of Africa, what we found is that as those countries start to see domestic growth recover from a, from a lower period, such as we did in 2016, um, because they don't have such large domestic industrial bases to serve those domestic economies, they rely much more on exports, on sorry, on imports than they previously did. You're watching current account deficits start to widen much more rapidly and earlier in an economic recovery phase than would have been the case 15 to 20 years ago. And so that does have important implications for currencies. Um, as we look at them from sort of US dollar based investors perspectives in terms of the stresses and pressures that build up uh, uh, on those sort of currencies within within certain emerging markets as a consequence of the structure of, the, of their economies now. And, and that has important implications for us as we think about sensitivities uh, of certain businesses to currency fluctuations and how policymakers may respond to that. Yeah, just to follow up on that, in, in my talks with kind of uh, local government authorities, I think this is becoming much more aware to these governments as they do kind of understand a lot more about these projects and, and what this ultimately means in, in the long run for them. Um, if I go back to the Sri Lanka example, um, historically, when you were building the port, as you mentioned, a lot of the materials used to build the port and the labor was coming from China. However, now in the future plans in, in the new kind of um, land development within, China, within Sri Lanka, they estimate that only around 5% of the labor will actually come from China. And they're actually looking for alternative sources outside of China for the imports um, along the infrastructure and, long, and, and kind of, you know, steel and, and, and cement is, are the kind of big two ones there. Now, we're going to hear now about one Chinese company that's involved in the bread and butter of Belt and Road. Anui Conch is a cement producer and investment director Catherine Young has been talking to Alex Dong, one of our analysts on the ground in China, about what Belt and Road means for the company and its overseas ambitions. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Now, much of the Belt and Road Initiative revolves around big infrastructure projects, something that China has had expertise in thanks to the huge amount of construction it does domestically. Cement is obviously a critical component to all this. So can you just please briefly describe the scale of that market segment in China? Cement in China is a one trillion China yuan market. And China consumes like 2.2 billion tons cement per year. It represents 56% of total global demand. U.S. just consumes 4% of total China demand. That is indeed large. And going from China being the largest consumer of cement to one of the largest cement producers in the country, it's, it's a company called Anhui Conch. And Conch has big plans overseas. Can you tell me what's driving this expansion? Conch is a cash cow now. It is creating 40 billion China yuan operating cash flow per year 
and it only needs $2 billion for the maintenance capex. So it will distribute the dividends to shareholders, and it also had to reinvest a lot into its future business. And of course, overseas expansion is very important in its five-year plan. And these are all mainly in one belt, one road regions. So Alex, to what extent does the Belt Road initiative actually incentivize the companies when it comes to choosing specific locations? Well, cement is an early economic development cycle commodity. And its demand always peaks when the GDP per capita is at 10 to 15,000 US dollars. So these developing countries like Indonesia, Burma and Cambodia in one belt, one road are very attractive because these regions have really large population and they all have the need to build the property and infrastructure projects to drive the urbanization. But then, Alex, what about some of the challenges that companies like Conch face in getting these foreign projects actually off the ground? And for sure, there are some kinds of challenges, like you have to recruit and train and also manage the locals. They have to find land, equipment, and also build sales channels. And these all take time. And you can see that their selling and administrative expenses may be slightly higher compared to what they have in mainland China. What's the outlook, therefore, with a company like Conch in respect to its big competitors? Well, I think it's still early days for its overseas expansion, so it's really hard to tell. But so far, I think its cost advantage is not as good as what they have in mainland China. I think they have done the groundwork very successfully, like in different regions like Indonesia, Burma, and Cambodia. And they have already built up their first capacities in these regions. And I think it will be easier for them to replicate the practice. Alex Dong there talking to Catherine Young. So despite the drive of Belt and Road, it can still be an uphill struggle for Chinese companies to establish themselves in new territories. Linda, as we look to the future of Belt and Road, how might this uh, initiative develop differently in the coming years? So we're talking about a lot of on the export side and in Chinese companies opportunities in, in, in the regions. Um, but I think that for the companies in the region, they probably will also have a lot more opportunities into China. So I think it, it becomes more um, multilateral. You know, um, China's definitely also want to be more open up. Now, Nathan, you know, the, the sustainability credentials of these and other projects is attracting more and more attention. I mean, how aware of sustainability are partner countries and how central is it to how people are looking at partnering with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, I think ESG is becoming a hugely important part of the Belt and Road project. And we can see that from both sides, not only from the Chinese side who are kind of prioritizing more green projects, but also from the partnering countries. Um, I, I tend to look at kind of two areas within this kind of sustainability framework. And, and the first is on environmental. Early infrastructure build-outs was predominantly in kind of coal-fired power plants. This has kind of shifted into the more um, renewable sector, and we've seen kind of hydropower um, come into the region. And, and this is in a region or the, which actually has quite a diverse landscape and, and difficult um mountain ranges in, in areas such as northern Pakistan and even like Laos, um, but they are persevering with this hydropower um, initiative. Uh, and the second thing is just kind of on the governance, you know, um, I think we need to sometimes take a little bit as of a step back from some of the political agendas which might be involved here, understand, you know, that the responsibility should be on both sides of the table here. 
um, the Chinese as well as the kind of local governments have the responsibilities to look at the kind of feasibility of these projects, the understanding and the long term impacts. I mean, if I think about 2020, I mean, aside from the pandemic, it's also been characterized by a a fractious sort of geopolitical environment. Um, Alex, how do you think that one belt, one road kind of plays into international relations? I, I think that as China's influence grows internationally, whether it's regionally within Asia or, or, or might more widespread than that, then clearly their political influence will also grow because what they think and how they want to operate and the initiatives they want to pursue will get greater traction as a consequence of their greater weight within within society and within the economies that, that they're they're cooperating with. So undoubtedly, you're going to see greater tensions. And, you know, we've been in a period for the last 70 years or so of sort of Washington consensus type approach to how the global order gets run. And, and, and that, you know, starts to get questioned and, and maybe not unreasonably so, but also at the same time, there needs to be checks and balances in place to ensure that we're we're comfortable as a society with, 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 how, with how we progress. I think, you know, China has clear economic and political motivations for uh, its policies and and the two are intertwined as as they always are with with any foreign investment as as I've witnessed it and I, and I see this as as being no different there are certain challenges um and that this is where it'll be sort of two steps forward one steps back india is always an interesting area of discussion because it is the other large populous domestic economy in Asia, right? You've got China on the one hand and, and India on the other. So it is the other kind of country which you, if you look forward 20 to 30 years, you could see maybe rivaling uh, China from a domestic uh, economic perspective. And clearly there are disputes around disputed border territories and so on that, that, that flare up that will likely impact China's ability to operate domestically in a country like India. That, I, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Although I think it's also worth reflecting that, you know, that India is a large recipient of loans from the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. So whether it's directly or, you know, less directly, a lot of these regional infrastructure initiatives, you know, India has benefited directly from. It doesn't sit apart from what's going on. Uh, but also, you know, coming back to, to Nathan's point, I think that the commitment that we've seen from China around sort of carbon neutrality by 2060, I think also has almost like a leadership role that it's taking around climate change in the context of its own economic strategy, but probably also its global political influence as well. Can I just maybe comment on that? Because it's a fascinating point, and I think Linda will be familiar with it as well. We know very, very familiar with a company called Weichai Power. Now, Weichai Power is a manufacturer of heavy-duty engines, historically heavy-duty diesel engines, would compete with the likes of Cummins from the US and, and, and other big global manufacturers of, of engines. And, and historically, they were, they were playing catch-up in terms of the technology. In new energy vehicles, so hydrogen-powered uh, technologies for long-distance logistics trucks and, um, and, and that, that sort of equipment, they have 50% market shares domestically, right, versus a 25 to 30% in traditional diesel engines. So their technology is far in advance of the leading multinationals, the blue chips that, are, that, that most of us are, are, are familiar with. And I think to your point around technological evolution, China is at the stage now where they're actually leaders. And, if you, and, and you can look at that in a whole variety of different capital goods. And so it, it is in the interests of a country like India, like Indonesia, uh, to, to embrace that. 
right? And, and to Nathan's earlier points as well, they've got a lower cost of capital. Um, and these countries are very high cost of capital countries. And so there's a clear advantage to, to, to partnering with China in a sensible, prudent fashion to, to ensure that we, we benefit from, you know, the historical economic textbook of comparative advantage. And, and I think that, that that logic will play out over time with bumps in the road along the way. But, but China's got a huge amount to offer as it's moved up the technology curve, and it's clearly willing and able to do that. Just got, got a lot more examples in on that front, you know, in, for example, in the EV side, uh, you know, probably think of a US or EU brand EV, it's probably still Tesla, I guess, dominates most of people's mind. Um, but in China, it just has tons of choices, ranging from maybe less than 10,000 US dollars to I don't know, maybe um, yeah, something close to Tesla, but most of the most of the cars still price below Tesla. So the Opal countries there, they embrace the EV EV trend. Um, definitely, I think the Chinese brands will give them a lot more choices. Thank you, Linda. So what we've learned today really is that One Belt One Road really continues to sit at the center of China's economic strategy and the central part of uh, the economic. Uh, landscape for for Asia um, overall, um, but it has a different characteristics. It's really evolved from where it started, from where we began the journey. You know, if we think about the context of a uh, post-pandemic environment, if we think about the the greater focus on sustainability, and really as we've been talking about the digitization of economies and the role that technology plays in the context of Belt and Road. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much to my guests, Linda Joe, Alex Duffy, and Nathan Sundram, and to our other contributors, Sumant Wahi and Alex Dong. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, then please go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. And if you want to listen to more episodes of The Investor's Guide to China, just search for that title in your podcast app. The producers today were Seb Morton-Clark and Neil Goff, with production support from Tommy Sue, Alex Wilcox, Eva Tam, and Madison Fletcher. The editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.